Well, I just want to thank you, everyone, for uh, participating tonight and coming as we worship the living God together. I will have to ask for your uh, apologies as I have a case of the sniffles. And uh, you're all going to be listening to me talk for the next hour. So just give me a little grace as we proceed with that. Maybe it's a good thing that you're all sitting so far away. But uh, uh, with that being said, we are, of course, going to continue our uh, sermon series, our studies in the Sermon on the Mount uh, found in Matthew's Gospel. And I would ask that if you have your copy of God's Word that you would turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 33 to 37, and I would ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. So the words of living Savior, Christ Jesus. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father God, we perceive your glory and your majesty as we come to you this evening. Father, we just ask that you would humble us before your mighty throne. You would humble us before the truth of your word. Father, we ask that you would create within us a clean and pure hearts, that you would remove from our minds worldly thoughts, Lord, that we may not be distracted from the great task that is before us tonight, and that is to offer up worship to you that is pleasing and acceptable, that is to hear from your word as you are our great teacher and our great counselor, and Father, that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, that the truth of this word would find a resting place not only within our minds but in our hearts as well, that we might be transformed that we may live anew, that we may live afresh as we go out into the world and as we bear witness to your Son, who is the enthroned King. Father, this is your world. And Father, we ask for your grace tonight. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, If you have been uh, following along with the sermons in the series up to this point, you know that, uh, or you will know that, some of the topics that we have discussed as of late uh, were topics of sex and sexuality, lust, adultery, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And uh, so it may seem that that if you were mindful of those, those things, that as we look at our topic tonight, you know, it What we're going to discuss may seem rather uh, tame in comparison. You know, when it comes to uh, sex and sexuality in in the church, everyone seems to get a little unnerved as as we discuss things, and things seem to become rather personal as the Spirit of God ministers the Word to your hearts and conviction is felt. And then we look at a passage where Jesus talks about oaths, and how you should take an oath or how you might not uh, take an oath. And it may seem rather antiquated, but... And and so I'm just afraid to confess that, you know, in our modern eyes, you know, this topic just doesn't seem as as biting or, or as grabbing as some of the other things that we've been talking about. But perhaps then, that being the case, that is a very good reason why we should... Uh, spend some time talking about this. And of course, that's the reason why we work verse by verse th- through, through a text like this, that we, we don't skip over anything. We don't just talk about my favorite stuff to talk about or what I know you're going to be excited about. We, we are simply bowing the knee and allowing the Word of God to minister to us 
as it is presented. Now, to sort of lay a foundation, uh, I have often thought for a very long time and that, that, that one of the, the, the largest errors that modern man makes is that he does not think very deeply about things. Uh, we, you see this all the time in the culture. You, you see this when it comes to some of our men here tonight were, were discussing what happened as of lately with, with COVID and, and some of these other things and, and how people would just, just accept what they're told uh, without really giving much thought or, or, uh, or, or critical thinking uh, to these different things. And it's like we see that in so many different areas that we are so willing as, as men and women to just accept certain things or to engage in certain activities Sometimes we will even hold to certain beliefs, sometimes even certain religious beliefs, without really thinking very much about them at all. Uh, and, and this is another thing we've discussed lately, but I know since the time that I started out in, in ministry and, and studying and preaching and teaching the Word of God, I know that there are religious beliefs that I have held to in the past that I have since abandoned. Uh, because of the teaching of Scripture, what, what I realized is wh- when I looked at God's Word more intimately and more closely, that these things that I had just accepted from my tradition, from my upbringing, the culture in which I was raised, really just didn't stand up. And, and, and that's, it's hard to do that, for one, because it's, it's humbling. It's humbling to say, well, you know, this is what I've always thought or this is what, what I've always believed. And if, and if I change what I believe, that means I have to admit that I, that I was wrong. But we have to be uh, ready to do that as, as thinking Christians. I think Christians need to be very deep-thinking people. I think that's one of the amazing things is that God has given us a book. He, he's given us His Word. That means we, we should be those who know how to engage with a piece of literature, to engage with a piece of text and to look at, at the, its historical background, to think about how to harmonize it with other parts of the text. And we should be willing to do that because we should do that each and every day of our lives, regardless of you know, whether the culture moves towards six-second TikTok videos, we need to be those who are not conformed to the spirit of this age, those who can engage with text, with literature, and deep thoughts and, and critical thinking. And so, one of the ways that, that we see very plainly in our day, uh, which, which once you start thinking more deeply about it, you'll notice it even more, is that modern man t- tends not to think very deeply about his speech about communication, about the things that he says. Perhaps, and, and I hinted at this just a second ago, but perhaps because our culture just does not value language and, and, and communication very much at all. In just a matter of a few decades, uh, you know, handwritten letters had turned into phone calls, phone calls turned into text messages, and text messages have shrunk down to, to a comment on a Facebook post. And, and then you think about it a little bit more and, and, and the communication that we engage in online. And it's like we're too lazy to even type out full sentences. And even if we do, you know, we rarely actually use punctuation marks. Instead of, you know, it takes far too much effort to move your fingers or to move your thumbs and to say, well, I'll be right back. So then we have to type BRB and so on and so forth. But apparently, Western people are just so busy, we just have so much going on that, that even that takes too much effort. And now what we do is, is we click a button and then we just talk. And then it takes care of it uh, for us. Now, I'll be the first to admit, that's very convenient. It's very convenient when you're driving and, and stuff like that. But, you know, when I see small children on a phone or on a tablet, I don't know how they got it in the first place, but... Regardless, when they're just speaking and they're not actually learning how, how to spell or how to write, I, I get like literally angry. I get literally angry because you're supposed to know how to interact 
with the English language. And it's like we're the first generation since the founding of this country that is going to have a lower literacy rate than our forefathers, which it, that, that's just mind-blowing to me. And, and, and perhaps because we don't really realize uh, how much of a blessing it is but when we think about, you know, so many of us, like right here, I have sitting in front of me a, a complete, all 66 books of the canon, leather-bound Bible, and you, we just take things like that for granted, but we have to recognize is there have been countless Christians down through the ages who lived, who honored God in their lives, and who died without ever having that. I mean, they might be lucky to hear the Scriptures read once a week, let alone to personally possess it. And it's like we have so much that we just, it's like we don't appreciate it. And, and so, and, and that, that affects our communication. Uh, you think about some of the conflicts that happened uh, throughout church history, whether it's in the early church or in the Reformation, where if someone over in Rome wanted to communicate to someone in Constantinople, well, there's a lot of miles in between there. And, and there is actually a point in time where, well, in Constantinople they were speaking Greek, in Rome they were speaking Latin, and so they had to really think deeply about what they were saying, and it was all things that were handwritten. And even once you get into the Reformation with the printing press, it's still to, to write out a whole book and then to wait months for someone to respond to it. That, that was, it, it forced you to think a little bit more deeply about what you were saying. And it's like now we can just communicate so fast and so fast, and that's wonderful. It's amazing. But it's also dangerous. We're not thinking about what we're saying. Now, what on earth is my point, you may be wondering. Well, when I read the Scriptures, it becomes very apparent to me that the way in which we talk, the way that we communicate, the way that we speak, uh, utilize language is of the utmost importance to our God. That there are, are numerous passages in the Scriptures which deal with how we speak, the content of our speech, to avoid a crude sort of speech but, and, and the like, and there are a number of different things we can look at, uh, but because of our commitment to studying verse by verse of the Sermon on the Mount tonight, we are going to be addressing the topics, uh, topic of oaths and vows and, and, and really just honest, plain speech. We're going we're gonna to deal with all that, and so I just pray that as the message is preached that God's Spirit will be working to get you to think about how this applies to the way you uh, utilize your mouth. So in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, as we have been going through Matthew 5, for those of you who have been here, we've grown used to how Jesus will use this phrase uh, to critique the way that the law had been mishandled by the scribes and the Pharisees, where he, he will introduce a teaching or introduce a concept by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so the specific phrase, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, that's not a, a direct citation of any particular text, but there are numerous passages in the law which address the topic of oath-making. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 32 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23 if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past, past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, I realize I, I just read really quickly a couple different texts there. So if we were to summarize 
what the law, what the Torah's teaching on the matters of oaths and vows were, we, we see that one could swear by the name of the Lord, but that truthfulness, truthfulness, honesty, remained preeminently important. So if, some, if, if you were being accused of something, for instance, you would have the permission, you could be permitted to say, well, I swear in the name of the Lord, I swear by Yahweh, I am innocent. And in that case, swearing to God demonstrates just how serious you are about what it is that you're saying. You, you are invoking the name of Yahweh himself. You're invoking the name of the Lord as a witness to your case. You're saying, he testifies, he who sees all, he who is the sovereign one, he testifies to the truthfulness of what I am saying. One could also, in a similar fashion, make an oath in the form of a vow. You know, I vow or I pledge by the name of God Almighty himself that I, I will do such and such thing. Utilizing the awesome and powerful name of God was permissible in such a fashion the the one very important, very serious stipulation was that you were being truthful uh, and, and that you were actually going to do such and such thing, which is why in Deuteronomy 23 it says, listen, if you're not actually going to follow through, it'd just be better if you didn't make a vow at all. Refrain from profaning God's name by swearing falsely. Such is, is and that uh, we see some of that in, in what's the third commandment, you shall not take the Lord... Uh, the name of the Lord thy God in vain in such a manner. Because what you're doing is you're saying that that name is not really that important. It doesn't really matter if I can just toss it around uh, and, and use it to, to justify my lying and my deception. And so, you know, I, I mentioned at the start, in our modern day and in our modern culture here in the West, and, and maybe this is just my own thoughts that I'm projecting, but, you know, do we really give very much attention at all to how we speak for that to even seem relevant? You know, words and phrases just roll off of our mouths without so much as a second thought. You know, do we, ever, do, do we take the words that we say and that we speak so seriously that, you know, swearing an oath, making a vow is a really like a serious thing to you. Like your word has that much weight. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, you will hear men all the time uh, very blasphemy, blasphemously utilizing a phrase such as, you know, I swear to God just because they're, they're angry in instances when they're, it's like they're, they're not even conscious that what they're doing when they just say that and it just rolls right off the tongue that they are calling in the sovereign Lord of the universe, the one who created them, the one who sustains the very breath that is in their lungs as a witness to whatever it is that they're saying. And, and, and so now why even have oaths at all? Why even have vows at all? Why, why would God put that in his, in his law, in the Old Covenant? Well, you see, due to man's uh, fallen nature, God permitted, God allowed the utilization of oaths uh, in ancient Israel. Why? Because sadly, it is in human nature to lie or to perceive that you are being lied to. And so God instituted oaths and vows as a way of giving reassurance to another party that what you are saying is truthful. Uh, which, by the way, that, that is actually a mercy of God. He does that for the blessing of his people. Now, like most things, man in his sin finds a way to take a good thing and to distort it. And so what we have to recognize and we see this is what Jesus is going to be responding to here, is the way that the scribes and the Pharisees had perverted, had perverted and distorted this practice of oath-taking. You know, they had, and you can look at some of this in, in what's known as the Mishnah, they had come up with so many different scenarios and, and, 
and ways around actually obeying God's law. The most significant way, as it is one that actually comes up in the New Testament itself, is that, well, because they knew that if they invoked the name of the Lord, that, you know, they were obligated to be truthful, to be honest in how they spoke. So they got around that. They got around having to be totally honest in their speech by swearing to what they considered to be a lesser thing. This actually comes up later in Matthew in the 23rd chapter where it's that great section where Jesus is, is contradicting every Sunday school drawing of Jesus you've ever seen where he's giving his, his woes, his seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says there, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, well, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, what's being rebuked there? What's being uh, displayed in that text? Well, in a completely ridiculous fashion, the Pharisees had determined that, well, if you swear by this thing over here, well, you have to be truthful. That, that's like a serious, oh, that's a serious vow. But if you, you, know, you swear by this thing, well, it's not really that serious. You can get away with, with sort of lying or, or being deceptive. And so it's like, well, if you swear by the temple, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. But, but man, if, if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, you better believe that, that's, that's a binding oath. And that's, what is that? Well, that's ludicrous. That's, that's insane. And, and so what Jesus says in that chapter, he's like, listen, whatever it is that you are swearing to, whether it's the temple or you're swearing by heaven, it ultimately, God owns it all. It all goes back to him. And thus, the oath is binding because God saw that. He saw that you made a promise that you didn't keep. He saw that you testified something that was not true. And so we see Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 34 37. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And there's, by the way, a very good case to be made of the original language that that's the evil one. Uh, and so, just as Deuteronomy 23 said that it would just be better not to take a vow at all than to take a vow and not keep it, Jesus gives this, and, and we're going to discuss that a little bit more, but he gives this general, I would say, statement uh, just don't even take an oath. Just don't take an oath at all. As we have seen, the Pharisees thought that they could swear by lesser things and thus wouldn't have to be as strict as if they had sworn to God. But Jesus demonstrates there's not really a case to be made. Uh, there, there's no workaround at all. He says, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. There's a cross-reference could be made. Isaiah 66 verse 1 reads, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. You see, men who would try to swear by these things uh, and perceive that they were lesser things and, and, and think that they could, you know, get around uh, or are, you know, avoiding bringing God in as a witness, forget that, well, that's the Lord's habitation. Heaven's his throne, the earth's his footstool. It belongs uh, to him, just as Christ was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, you know, heaven and earth, that's, that's pretty all-encompassing. Uh, but men may try to get even a little bit lower than this and say, well, 
I swear by Jerusalem. You know, if I, if that, that's kind of a, that's lesser than the earth, so maybe I can get around there. But what they're forgetting is Jesus says in, in verse 45 is, well, that's the city of the great king. That, that, that belongs to God as well. Thus, even here, you have not escaped the all-seeing eyes of the Lord. And so what Jesus says in verse 36, then, is I think the, the, well, one of the most brilliant statements in here, the most captivating thing of all, he says, also, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You see, here is how foolish man is in his rebellion, that he thinks even his own head, he thinks even his own body is outside the domain of God. And yet Jesus says, well, listen, you do not have the ability to make one hair white or black. And, and, and so, now that's, this is not the main point of the text, but we must acknowledge how utterly important of a reality that is. You know, you hear lots of talk about autonomy. You say, well, what's autonomy? Autonomy, autonomos, it means a law unto oneself. And, and so, you know, both in theology and in our society, uh, when, when you watch the news today, uh, the, thinking theologically, the Pelagians, the Romanists, and the Arminians, you know, love to boast of their autonomous their libertarian free will, that they have the ability to choose between good and evil, God or the devil, all on their own. They don't need any grace. They, they, they got it. But the reality is, your head itself belongs not to you, but belongs to God. And thus, Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You may not like that, but the reality is you're not your own. And in our society today, how much do we hear about things like, well, my autonomy, my, my bodily autonomy, uh, that people, women in particular, have a right to do with their bodies what they want to do. Well, the, the, the problem with that thinking is it presupposes that your body is something which belongs uniquely to yourself. Well, not only was it God who gave your body to you in the first place, but God is the very one sustaining it right now, and it is God who will raise your body up on the last day when you stand before his judgment throne. And so you may go on and you may live and you may do what you want with your body and society may excuse you, but always remember that it is God before whom you shall stand one fatal day. And so thinking about that, I, I think we need to allow that to grip us, to pierce us, to break our hearts, that I'm truly not my own, that there's a sovereign, there's a king of the universe who owns me. I'm his creation. He is my creator. I am clay. He is the potter. And I must obey him. I must obey him. And, and thinking in the context of Jesus' words here, if you think that you can swear by your own head and that that's something that God doesn't have any authority over, well, you're completely wrong. And so no matter what you can come up with, any created thing, even the very head on top of your shoulders ultimately belongs to God. And thus to swear by it is to swear by God. And so as a rebuke to the Pharisees, Jesus says, don't swear. Don't, don't take an oath at all. Just let what you say simply be yes or no. Now, I hinted at this earlier, but something here needs to be addressed. It is well known that the early Anabaptists, uh, the spiritual forefathers of the Mennonites, that, that would not be our spiritual lineage, but think the Mennonites and the Quakers after them uh, have famously taken Jesus' commands here very literally and thus in their lives observe a strict principle never to swear uh, under any circumstance whatsoever, never to make an oath. But you see, when you look, when you... So everyone, if, if you are hanging around John and I a lot, you know what sola scriptura means. It means that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith 
for the church. It is the norm of norms. It is the standard by which we judge all other things. But in addition to sola scriptura, there's another thing we practice. That's called tota scriptura. And that means all of scripture. So not only sola scriptura, scripture is the, the one final rule of faith. It is the, the norm of norms, but we must take all of scripture. We must allow all of it to speak together. And when you allow all of Scripture to speak to the issue of oaths and swearings, it very much is different than what the Mennonites and others would lead you to believe. And so the reason for this, uh, to say that Jesus here forbids all oaths in any circumstance whatsoever would be to make Jesus contradictory of himself and so much of other Scripture, and we'll get into this. And, And so... You know, earlier we we read a few quotations uh, from the law which prohibited not oath-taking but false oath-taking. In addition to this, though, we find other passages which seem to encourage or even require oath-taking as opposed to merely regulating them. Take, for example, Deuteronomy 6.13. says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Now, in the context of that verse, the Israelites are being instructed to have complete and total devotion to Yahweh. And one of the signs of this is that they would swear by his name. Again, in Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Notice that in in both places, the people are not told by his name you may swear if you want to, but rather by his name you shall swear. It it would appear that swearing by God's name is something he requires. We see this again in Jeremiah 12, verse 16. Interestingly, in the same context of worshiping and serving God alone, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah we read, and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. And then it gives an example of how you're to do this as the Lord lives. Even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Now, I read those verses and someone may object, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. We're under the New Testament now. Well, my first response to such a person would be to remind them of what Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, if you've been following along, you know this by now. He says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Well, then the next thing I would do is to show that person even the apostle Paul himself makes use of oaths in the in his letters in the New Testament. Uh, by saying such things as as for God is my witness. So we have to harmonize this, right? If even the apostles who wrote the New Testament permitted themselves to use the name of God in this way, it seems very apparent that Jesus' words are not a broad condemnation of any and all oath-taking. However, the real smoking gun against those who say a Christian should never take an oath is to be found in the fact that God himself has, in redemptive history, made use of oaths. We read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, if, if, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you remember that, that great scene in Genesis chapter 15 when the Lord has Abraham uh, sacrifice various animals and lay them over top of one another. And then that night, what happens? Well, he gives Abram a vision, a dream where 
There's a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch symbolizing the Lord, and they pass between these pieces, which in that ancient culture was a way of uh, making an oath, swearing an allegiance. And there we see God himself is swearing an oath by himself. But then we also see in Hebrews chapter 7, it reveals to us that Jesus himself was ordained as priest after the order of Melchizedek on the basis of an oath. Hebrews 7, verses 17 through 21, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That's a citation from Psalm 110.4. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, the, the, this, and if you know the book of Hebrews, you know what's going on there. You have the argument of Jesus as, as the better priest, the the. the one true priest, the final priest, this new priest is contrasted that his priesthood was established with an oath. And it says, by the one who said to him, quote, the Lord has sworn. That is, the Lord has made an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. What you have there is that, and this is so beautiful, God the Father himself ordains the Son as priest after the order of Melchizedek on the establishment of an oath. Now, is Jesus, if you allow for the highest view of Scripture, if you allow for harmonization, is Jesus going to condemn oath-taking in any and all scenarios when he himself was established as priest on the basis of an oath? Will God call that sin which he himself has done? It can never be so. And thus, uh, the practice of, of the Mennonites and others who would forbid the taking of oaths in any and all circumstances is seen to be plainly refuted by the testimony of Scripture. Well then, what are we to make of this? Well, if one takes, as I said, the highest view of Scripture allows for harmonization, the answer is quite simple. Jesus here is not prohibiting any and all uses of oaths. He is particularly correcting the abuses, not the proper uses, but the abuses of oaths by the scribes and Pharisees. And in the process, he teaches his followers that oaths are to be used, if at all, very sparingly. You see, this is what's so amazing. Language is powerful. Language is powerful, and so to invoke the name of God in your conversation is a very serious, it's a very solemn thing. We should only ever use oaths in times of great seriousness and great solemnity. Now, the Puritans believed it to be acceptable to swear oaths in the court of law, for instance, which is why in England... One would say, well, I swear by Almighty God, or, or I swear by Jehovah that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In America, that was actually changed a little bit uh, due to the Quakers in Pennsylvania who, as previously mentioned, abstained from religious oaths, uh, and thus the name of God is not commonly used in an oath before the magistrate, although often it has been the practice to place one's hand over top of copy of the Scriptures, the Bible. Now, that's one that's, I think, very relative, relative to, to our experiences. But other instances, you know, when, when taking an oath would be acceptable for the Christian would be those instances in which it becomes apparent to you that this is a matter of great severity, great seriousness. The thing forbidden here by Christ is plain and ordinary swearing or oath-taking when you invoke God's name in matters that are so uh, frivolous. And, and, and if it sounds like I'm just 
I'm trying to make excuses here. If you actually do some reading, if you, if you look at the Mishnah, for example, which is a collection of Jewish teachings, you will know that uh, the rabbis had uh, ordinations for how you were to properly make an oath or a vow in regards to eating bread or drinking wine. And, there's, uh, and this is just off the top of my head, but if you... If you, make, if you make a vow to eat bread and drink wine, but you only drink the bread, then, then, then that violates it. But if you just make the vow to drink the bread and you just say that you're going to drink the wine, but you, it, and it's like, hold on a second. Let's just like stop. Is that really something that's so serious that we need to invoke the name of Almighty God? No, it's not. It's, it's laughable. And, and, and so it's that plus the, the abuses of the Pharisees to swear by a lesser thing and to try, try and avoid God's eyes. That is what Jesus is, is addressing there. And so we could also extrapolate from this, and I think this is very uh, plain and obvious, that any and all irreverent uses of the name of God are, are accounted as sin. Using God's name in clearly, is, is clearly such a serious thing and must be done with fear and trembling. Hence the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And there is, I think, a very specific application to this idea of swearing or oath-taking, but, but just think about that. How, how often do uh, we see men and women treating the name of God or the Lord Jesus Christ as though it were nothing? Uh, Christians must not grow numb to this. Every time that, that, that we hear it done, we must ache inside that a little, tiny creature would so utterly disrespect the name of his Creator. Now, the main thing that Jesus wants his followers to do then is rather than taking oaths over every little thing that happens in your life, this is the general principle, we should cultivate, we should cultivate such a high level of integrity and honesty uh, in our speech amongst your fellow man that you can just simply say yes or no and be trusted. Because remember, the only reason that oaths exist in the first place is because of the fact that lying and deception exists in the world. If you know a person in your life who has to constantly just say, well, I swear, I swear, I swear, I, I promise, you know, I, 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 I'm not lying, I swear, if, if they just constantly have to keep saying that, why? It's because, well, you've known that person long enough to know that when they speak to you, Hard to trust them, right? And, and so that's the only reason that that language even exists. Uh, and, and so that should not be how Christians speak. Uh, we ought to be those with such a high level of integrity in our speech that as James says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. If, if a Christian, if a brother or a sister in the Lord says to me something, I should be able to trust that they are being truthful. And so Jesus then ends verse 37 by saying, anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one, depending on how you translate it. And, and thus we see how important our words and our everyday speech is to God. Again, I just encourage you to pray long and hard about this as it it seems to me uh, that this is just not something we think very deeply about at all in our society. Uh, but we must not be like society. Uh, what's, you know, we must be countercultural. Now, when I was younger, I always thought that was really cool, that idea of being countercultural. And then I realized, without even trying, I did it. <laughs> because uh, when, when Jesus, here's what Jesus says. He says, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. That's 
what Jesus says about Christians is that he has chosen you out of the world so that you're not of the world. Now, if you were of the world, the world would love you as the world's own. So when, 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 you, when you see churches, when you see ministries, when you see people who it's like they're trying to do everything that they possibly can to fit in with the world, maybe if we uh, take them around these basketball players or, or, or whatever, then they'll look really cool and they might fit in. But that goes directly against what Jesus is saying here. And so the question is, do you believe 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when it says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man and that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? Do you trust the Holy Spirit or do you trust your own intellect? Do you trust your own cleverness? Do you trust in the schemes of man or do you trust in the power of God? That's the real question. I have no idea how I got onto that. I remember now. But my point is, <laughs> no, and, and, but so anyways, what I was saying there is that we must speak honestly and plainly. Whether if, if, if the world wants to be full of decept, deception in their, you know, think about the advertising industry. Uh, and, and, and how much of that is based on, on trying to dupe you or to deceive you. We must not be like that. We must be those who are just honest, simple, plain, direct. When I, one of the things that I, and, and maybe you guys appreciate it or not, when I, when I preach, I try to just preach very logically and just very matter-of-factly. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, recite poetry up here. I'm just trying to, to get this, to give it to you. So, when we think about uh, abstaining from lying and deception, Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Take heed of that warning. Uh, today I beseech you by God's grace to become men and women of honest, integral speech. And because of the fact that our country was founded on, on Christian principles, you know, it was once upon a time in our country where uh, we told the story you know, of, of George Washington cutting down his father's cherry tree. And, and when, when, it, when his father, you know, found out, his father you know, buys a brand new axe, and, and little George, he takes it, and he, and he chops the tree down. When his father finds out, he's all angry, and little boy says, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I cut the tree. We used to celebrate that. We used to, to, to adore figures like that, and, and yet, I don't, these things just seem so irrelevant to us nowadays. Now, I suppose then that to reclaim and reestablish the importance of honest, plain, uh, simple speech in our world, it is going to be the Christian church that does this. It's going to be you, out talking not, not just me when I preach, but you as you live your lives in the world, as you go to your, uh, you know, your vocations. And by the way, the word vocation is a Latin word, it means calling. Because there's nothing, everything that you do as a Christian is sacred. And, and, and when God, if you're a salesman, if you're a public school teacher, if you're a laborer, whatever it is that you do, that is your vocation, that is your calling, that is where God has placed you in the world to be salt and to be light. That's how culture gets changed. It's just by simply reading God's Word, obeying God's Word, and living that out. And so... Let me just close by saying that if you truly search your heart, if you truly search your heart, every single person in this room, myself included, has at one point or another told a lie, has made vain or irreverent uh, oaths and promises, and has even taken God's name itself and used it in a filthy way. There's none of us uh, it can be excused. If the Lord should count iniquities, who should stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Jesus says that this stems from the evil one, or evil. And though you may not think 
that this is, you know, as bad a sin as murder or rape or theft, rest assured that this rationalization will mean nothing to you. Uh, if one day you should wake up and find yourself condemned to that eternal hellfire of which our Lord speaks. If you recognize your guilt right now, you can feel blessed. By the way, feeling convicted of your sin is a blessing. For, it is, for, for there are some men that God never allows to even see this. As the prophet of old has said, Isaiah, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Some man God never allows to even see their own guilt, to see their own shame. And so if you do, count your blessings. For when you recognize that, then it becomes your responsibility to repent of this sin, to confess it to the Lord whose name is holy. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who shall call upon His name shall be saved. Now, instead of using that holy name in a filthy way, you will see how precious it truly is. For that name, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, Lord, Jesus Christ, is your one and only hope of salvation. As the apostles preached, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Turn now and find peace while you're able. And from thenceforth, let us together as God's people, people who are honest, simple, and direct. As Jesus says, God is seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Would you close with me in order of prayer? Father God, Father, we, we thank You for Your convicting and Your challenging word this evening. Father, let, let, if this is not something that we uh, normally give heed to, normally give attention to, we, we just ask that you would, by your grace and the working of your Spirit, show us the importance of these things. Father, that in every little, tiny aspect of our lives, we would live according to your will and for your glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.